When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis to all the topics we're discussing about the beautiful game. I'm Ian McGarry, with me as always is Duncan Castles. Today we have news for you, of course, to start with. But also, fair, a very, very, very insightful look into the fine detail and forensic analysis of what COVID-19, the risks, and of course, the advantages potentially of re- Project Restart in the Premier League with two of Europe's top scientists. We start off, of course, with the market. And as I'm sure you're aware and you've been getting in touch with us about, the interest of Chelsea in Timo Werner. It was certainly the case that I brought you news on this week's podcast on Wednesday that Liverpool were very much in the driving seat to sign Werner, but had yet to offer or indeed agree with RB Leipzig for the 24-year-old, who has scored 25 Bundesliga goals, 32 in all competitions this season. Since then, Chelsea have taken advantage of Liverpool's inertia in moving to secure the player, despite having worked very hard, and Jurgen Klopp in particular working very hard to convince the player to join him at Anfield, and offered the player around £50,000 more per week than the contract offer he has at Chelsea, as well as an offer to meet in principle RB Leipzig's rescission clause for the player, which stands at 60 million euros. This is a classic example of a blindside move um, in the transfer market. Uh, We make no apology for bringing you the news that we did on Wednesday, but also we're happy to tell you what's going on right now. And that is that Chelsea have overtaken Liverpool, clearly, in the uh, race to sign Ferner from RB Leipzig. The offer to him is a five-year contract worth £195,000 per week. Um, We understand that uh, this has been done through an intermediary agent initially who works on behalf of Chelsea, a well-known agent, direct to Karl-Heinz Forster, who is Timo Werner's agent, and those two have, between them, come up with a deal which is attractive to his parent club as stands. Frank Lampard, the Chelsea head coach, has prioritised in this coming market a left-back and a centre-back, but has been looking to augment his striking options and certainly did not get any uh, of the correct responses from the administrators at his club in terms of recruiting players in the January window. 
And so this looks like it's a kind of maybe a bit of reassurance for the former Chelsea captain and midfielder with regards to the club's ambitions and helping him to fulfil his own uh, ambitions of returning the club to Premier League and European success. Duncan, this is not unusual in football, is it, with regards to um, a club taking advantage of another club's um, indecisiveness in terms of a transfer. But uh, with Chelsea having signed Olivier Giroud on a, a, uh, another year's contract and with Tammy Abraham being Lampard's number one starting striker, uh, would you see Werner playing through the middle or would you think you might be looking at playing left side coming in from the right? I think the advantage with Timo Werner is he can play all across the attack. Um, so in, in that sense... It's not particularly an issue that um, Tammy Abraham is Frank Lampard's preferred choice and, and the, the forward that uh, Lampard has faith in. We know that Lampard wanted to bring an additional striker in in January and uh, part of the reason for that was to take some of the weight off Abraham's shoulders, um, yeah, not to expose his inexperience to the degree it, it had to be because there wasn't um, a, uh, a high level enough um, substitute for him um, for a good part of the season. So the the ability to to have someone like Werner who's capable of playing central, but also can play off either wing or as a as a second uh, striker will augment his squad. Um, he's obviously already got Hakim Ziyech secured to come in from Ajax, which again um, gives him a lot of additional attacking firepower. Um, as you say, that this is uh, it's a situation which, which Chelsea have quite cleverly exploited um, using um, well-known agent that they've used in, in multiple um, previous transfer deals to um, put an offer on the table that suits Leipzig. As you said on the, the podcast, Leipzig were concerned that they were not going to achieve the 60 million euros release clause that they um, agreed with Werner um, when they extended this contract last summer after a deal to an expected deal to Bayern Munich had, had fallen through, that release clause would have dropped in value for the coming summer. So um, they faced losing the player in a year's time for less money and the, the question marks over how Werner would uh, perform in the, the season coming, having missed out twice on uh, on moves to uh, to clubs who could pay him more money and uh, give him a better opportunity to win trophies. So getting Chelsea involved in the deal worked for them. Then you have the element of persuading Werner and Chelsea have clearly used uh, the classic um, strategy of, of persuading any player who, who is, um, has his uh, mindset on another club, which is to offer more money. Um, and to offer a better deal and to be in a position to deliver that cash immediately. Um, I think it's problematic for Liverpool to have let Jurgen Klopp down in this way. Um, we've explained in this podcast how much effort Klopp had, had put into persuading Werner that Liverpool was the right place for him to come. There had been this interest in him um, from a number of Premier League clubs. So he had a choice um, or 
it looked like he was going to have a choice of which club to go to in a normal market where that 60 million fee was entirely reasonable and accessible for a number of Premier League clubs. And, uh, and Werner could then decide um, which club suits his, his career ambitions and which club was going to pay him best. Um, Klopp had done, as he often does, and has got into trouble in the past for doing, um, the, the, the groundwork of, of talking to players directly and convincing them that uh, Liverpool and, and he were the right places to work. Who could um, you be referencing, Duncan? <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt. Um, and there was a, a, you know, there's a very obvious reason why they wanted to bring Werner in, which is um, down the line, the expectation that Mo Salah or Sadio Mane will leave the club um, to go to one of the big uh, Spanish sides and, uh, and a replacement be, be required. And also um, the, something that Klopp has complained publicly about, the, the move of the African Cup of Nations back to January um, in the coming season. So uh, Klopp was aware he was going to lose both Mane and Salah simultaneously for up to six weeks in January, um, one of the busiest parts of the season for any Premier League manager. And adding Werner to the squad would have um, uh, given him the alternative for at least one of those players covered half that gap and given Werner a lot of game time during the season after he'd had the period um, adapting to his training methods, and which would be expected and which, which most of the Liverpool players who have been signed have required uh, an adaptation period where they don't usually play a high number of games in the first half of the season anyway. Um, obviously, Liverpool have a reason for trying to um, knock the, the fee down. One was to take advantage of um, what they felt was a very strong position, having convinced the player to come. And two was the cost that the coronavirus has had on their um, their financial plans. Um, they did attempt to furlough staff early, which was a sign of the, the reservations the Americans have over their liquidity going through this period. Um, they have a very high wage bill as a result of the money that they've successfully invested in the team. Um, so we're trying to cut a bit of a financial corner in, in getting a discount on the deal. Um, but from a sporting perspective, it leaves Klopp in a difficult position. And uh, it'd be interesting to see what Liverpool do as an alternative, um, because the, the need for an additional player in that position remains. Um, we know that they like um, Jadon Sancho for that um, part of the field, but have determined that he was too expensive. You would expect that if they couldn't come to an agreement with Leipzig for Werner, uh, they won't be able to come to an agreement um, with Dortmund for Sancho, uh, who will be a more expensive player in terms of salary and transfer fee. Um, there is the possibility that uh, the African Cup of Nations will not be played in January now because um, COVID prevents it from taking place and it'll be uh, postponed to a later date, which will remove that problem for them. But um, long term and medium term, it is an area that, that um, Klopp wants to uh, reinforce in and, and this looks like costing him his preferred reinforcement for the position. It would be interesting to see how Jurgen Klopp responds to this setback, if indeed that is the case. 
Uh, obviously, Werner's yet to actually sign for Chelsea, despite the clause being met. Um, it is expected uh, in some quarters that Liverpool may well make a, another bid, having failed in an initial one around 16 days ago of €30 million Euros plus 15 in add-ons, which clearly is way below the, um, the rescission clause in Werner's contract, but certainly is potentially um, open to being upped and therefore giving Chelsea some competition. From one club or two clubs, if you want, who are willing to spend money to one who is not, Duncan. We spoke on the podcast some weeks ago about uh, Premier League clubs' rather parlous state of finances uh, during this pandemic and how clubs were being looked upon as uh, very, very ripe for making borrowing uh, and loan applications. Um, this has certainly been the case, and Spurs, the latest club to draw down on a financial restructuring package from the Bank of England, uh, falling in Manchester United's footsteps, and Southampton's as well. Yeah, well, they've done something different here in that they've, they've very cleverly, I think, taken advantage of um, Bank of England um, HM Treasury uh, coronavirus loan facility, which allows... Uh, basically Tottenham to, in this case, they've issued £175 million of loans, which has been taken up by the Bank of England at a very low interest rate. Um, so they, they've bypassed the commercial market. Um, and we have told you on the podcast that the, the kind of interest rate that is being asked for some of these effectively bridging loans um, that clubs are looking uh, to secure to ensure they can pay wages um, through the summer, having lost out on um, a large degree of revenue through the the, um, the halt of of the league fixtures and every other fixture, um, and the rate that that commercial lenders are looking for can be in double digits, whereas this will be um, minimal percentage points. So uh, intelligent work by Daniel Levy to manage to convince uh, the the Bank of England and the government that uh, they were one of the leading companies which have a, an important role in the British economy um, with, with a strong investment grade rating and 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 therefore were eligible for one of these um, short-term loans. They've stated um, that uh, they will not use that money for player acquisitions um, in a uh, public statement they released upon announcing that they'd taken money from the government. Um, they've also stated that um, they expect uh, a, a revenue loss, including broadcasting rebates, that may exceed £200 million for the period to June 2021. So that's an indi indicator there of, of just how much damage um, coronavirus could do to Tottenham's business plan, which, remember, Almost all of Tottenham's outstanding debt is involved in paying for their new stadium. That stadium, the premise of it was not only to massively increase match day revenue, but it's also to increase revenue from conferences, conference events, um, NFL games they hope to have there in the long term. They hope to have a regular um, NFL team at uh, Naming Rights Lane. 
They also want to sell the naming rights to the stadium, which they haven't done yet. Um, but their business model has moved heavily towards the stadium and getting spectators into the ground as a way of uh, paying for it and uh, and paying for uh, the other things the, the club wants to do uh, in the transfer market. And that has been taken away from them. They've been hit, I think, as hard as, as any club in the Premier League by this. But it's, it's a very substantial loan, 175 million. Manchester United, we told you Wednesday, had taken um, down a... Um, revolving credit facility um, of £140 million. pounds. can tell you there's a, that Southampton are looking, have been looking for a loan of £100 million pounds plus um, to get them through the summer uh, to deal with liquidity issues that they expect to face. So that's just three Premier League clubs there um, borrowing or trying to borrow over £400 million pounds between them to get through uh, the pandemic and its effect on football. And I, I think that gives you an indication of of the degree of damage to business models that this this break from football has caused clubs and also um, helps explain why they have been so desperate to get football played again, to get Project Restart working, to get ghost games played, to um, sort out the broadcasters, to try and reduce the amount of money they have to pay back to their broadcast partners as a result of uh, not being able to, to provide the, the, the product that they contracted to provide. And speaking of which, Duncan, Project Restart was discussed yet again at a Premier League stakeholders meeting on Thursday of this week. Uh, some decisions were taken regarding um, uh, an increase of substitutions allowed to five, as well as um, venues and squad uh, capacity, etc. But the most important and most crucial part of the restart was not agreed upon, which is what happens if it closes down again? And we discussed on the pod on Wednesday the legal implications of going into a restart without all 20 clubs agreeing on what might happen or what would happen in the event of a curtailment or closed shutdown of the Premier League once it had restarted. Someone described it as kicking the can down the road, Duncan. Um, our information is that at least six clubs are pushing back on any agreement and of course that would leave the Premier League open to legal action on the basis that no agreement had been reached ahead of a possible restart and therefore you've got all sorts of potential consequences um, with regards to legal recourse um, in terms of relegation, European places etc etc. Uh, we've also uh, heard that the Premier League's hope, <laughs> we stress, hope is that uh, the major decisions regarding relegation and placings for European qualification would be decided with at least three games to go. Therefore, meaning that any close down afterwards would be irrelevant regarding the way in which everything turned out in terms of placings. Is this wise, Duncan, or is this just one massive gamble? You can see the problems. I think you've detailed the problems well. If you don't have all the clubs signing off on a mechanism for re resolving the season, whether it's played out or not, because there is still a debate here and a very significant debate over whether teams should be relegated, regardless of 
whether Project Restart works and all the games are played and we have a full um, Premier League season to decide positions on. This has not been agreed by the clubs who are, who are threatened with relegation. And there is a, a, a very significant argument that it would be unfair to relegate because the integrity of the season is shot. Um, you're talking about playing some games at neutral venues. You, you're talking about removing home advantage. We've seen that uh, very much demonstrated in the Bundesliga. Uh, we, we had an interview with Uwe um, Hunemeyer, a Bundesliga player, last week telling us how uh, the ghost games, as they call them in Germany, uh, essentially remove the ability of the weaker teams to use home advantage and use the support of their crowd to beat stronger opponents. So that that's going to go in the Premier League. Um, some neutral venue games are going to be used. You've, you're changing the rules through the, through the competition. You're adding this five substitute for health purposes. There, you know, there, there's a good argument for it. We, we've talked a lot about the, the fitness issues and the risk of injury involved in, in bringing players back in this way and therefore adding more substitutes. Um, allows you to mitigate that danger to a certain extent, but it's a different competition. We also, I think an important point here is these games are, are designed to be played um, two a week per club um, in a rush to complete the season. Now, that, that's unusual scheduling for a lot of Premier League teams. Yes, clubs who play European competitions are used to playing two games a week for a very long chunk of the season. But what they do is they build a squad that's capable of, of playing two games a week. And a big part of the management of Champions League sites is to have um, a large enough squad that you can cope with the demands of playing twice a week. Clubs like Brighton, um, clubs like Aston Villa, clubs like Sheffield United, who are competing for a Champions League place, remember, who are in position, very good position, to take a Champions League place off Manchester United should um, Manchester City's ban be upheld and, and finish fifth in the Premier League. They have a squad designed to play in, in the main once a week and you're now going to ask them to chase Champions League football um, playing twice a week. Um, and the, the, there's an obvious expectation that this um, ghost game project restart will give the advantage to teams with larger squads which also, again, will affect the relegation dynamics. So to not have the fundamental issues of how do you decide the season if you don't finish and are these games going to be um, for relegation or not before you get going, it is legally, I think, very dangerous. And they're running out of time, quite simply. Um, the, the 17th of June is the, is the, the restart date. Uh, doesn't give them many more opportunities to discuss this and get everyone to agree to something that they have not looked like all agreeing to at any point so far. Well, from the legality of the restart to the more it, concerning issue, certainly in a human sense, uh, to the safety to the players and other members of staff of the restart, as promised at the top of the podcast, uh, Duncan and I caught up with two of the world's foremost medics um, earlier this week to talk in detail what happens should 
there be complications regarding Premier League clubs playing again? What happens with regards to multiple infection, etc.? And um, I think you'll find this a very, very interesting debate. Well, I'm delighted to say we're joined by two very renowned academics now to talk about coronavirus and the safety of football's return. Dr. Deedon Pilly, who is Professor of Virology at University College London, and Dr. Anthony Castillo, Professor of Global Health at the same uh, renowned university, as well as a former director of the World Health Organization. Welcome both. Now, I'm just going to give you guys um, a quote now from um, Premier League official guidelines to their professional players, which uh, came in the form of a graph for step one of return to training. Um, there's one key phrase in it, which I'm sure you will uh, recognise when you, you hear it. And I'd like you both just to tell, tell us what you think. So, and I quote, we want to make football the safest area of society. The welfare of players and their families is paramount. In order to do that, everyone will need to adopt new behaviours. Dinan, is that possible? Um, well, hi, and hi to your listeners. Um, on the one hand, football is undertaken outside, um, and there's no doubt that the highest risk of transmissions of this virus that we've seen to date are in enclosed spaces, whether those are healthcare settings, hospitals, care homes, in households. Um, and, and the advice, of course, is that we should be we can be outside um we can have barbecues we can meet um uh small groups of people outside and that's based on the assumption that when you're outside that the chances of being infected remain low lower than in an enclosed space um so i can understand the 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 sentiment here however and it is a big however is that any sport um, uh, particularly an active sport such as such as football, will involve a large amount of um, of running, of energetic work, of of closeness. There's no doubt you can't, other than training by yourself, when you get closer to play, to, to training as a team and playing. Then there's no doubt that's going to be uh, a, a risk because, of course. The, the more you, um, uh, you, you take a deep breath, the more you have to spit out saliva, which of course all footballers seem to do, you know, um, then of course it is a risk. And, um, and finally, um, whilst footballers are young um, and fit by definition, and therefore at least risk of getting severe disease themselves, um, I'm thinking of other staff within football clubs, maybe those not paid super super wages who themselves have to serve, you know, service the whole club and service those players and they themselves going home to maybe um, uh, elderly higher risk individuals. And therefore, I, I think it's in the balance and I certainly wouldn't be so confident as to as to support the statement that you've just made. Anthony here, and really nice to talk to your listeners. Yeah, I agree with Dean. And um, look, this is about balancing risks and benefits. And the equation is quite a difficult one. Uh, it's not about being totally safe, because you can't do that. 
staying at home is not totally safe at the moment. Um, so on the risk side, uh, the first thing that, for example, would make UK different from Germany, Spain and Italy is that we've got more baseline risk of infection right now. We've still got death rates of around two, three hundred a, a day, and we've probably got eight thousand cases per day at the moment. So that's you know sixty thousand a week. So the risk in society generally is there. Our R value, I'm sure your listeners know all about R's now, is hovering just below one. Um, clearly, to make football the safest, you would need a very good find, test, trace, isolate programme going on to try and lock down cases and contacts. And I'm sure the Premier League are doing that. I don't know what's happening further down the leagues. And, you know, in you know, if spectators are to come back to football, that's an issue. And then, of course, as Dean has said, there are risks to the families of football players and especially for staff, uh, older staff. Um, uh, obviously, most football players should, even if they became infected, would be expected to have a relatively mild illness, although, you know, some of them may have underlying conditions. The other thing is, um, you know, clearly we all want to get back to watching football. Um, if we watch it in mass gatherings, there are certain risks there. Uh, but equally, there are risks in small gatherings. I mean, if we're going to start the Premier League in a couple of weeks, I'm sure that I will get together with friends to watch, with family at home, and people will get together in groups, and that's an enclosed space, and that may increase the risk of transmission. And for players, I mean, this is a drop, you know, this is spread largely by droplets. So if you've got an infection, you cough it out or snot it out or whatever. And, you know, that's why there's a two meter rule. But also, if you look at some of the videos online from Korea, for example, they show you how there's a lot of micro droplets that come out that hover in the air for a long time and spread further than two meters. Now, I think playing a game of football when you're breathing heavily, um, you know, the corner, the set piece worries me a bit because there's a lot of players all crowding around, all holding one another and staying there for quite a few, you know, sometimes a couple of minutes wrestling and stuff and breathing heavily because they've just run the length of the pitch. And there could be quite a lot of virus around at that time if one of them happens to be infected. So those are some of the... But on the other hand, the benefits, I mean, football is very important. I mean, as you know, to quote Shankly, it's not a matter of life and death. It's more important than that to most people. And, you know, in Britain, we're passionate about it. We're all passionate about our teams. I've really missed the end of the season. I was hoping that Millwall would get into the playoffs. I'm sure um, Deenham was hoping for a revival of Spurs. But, you know, it is important. It's very important for most working people that that's their ability to be a bit cathartic on a Saturday and have fun and meet friends. It's an intensely social and important part of British culture and, of course, the culture of most of the world now. So it's a very difficult balance, this one. So you mentioned the environment being different in which English football will be returning from Germany and the, and the amount of cases there are um, in the surrounding country and the, the, the risk of one of those cases transmitting to 
um, a player who then trains and plays against opponents. There's, a, there's another fundamental difference between the Premier League protocol and the Bundesliga protocol in, in the testing regime, in that the Premier League tests are done twice a week and they take up to 48 hours before um, results are known. So you are not able to take the player out of the squad who is, has an infection for at least 24 hours and perhaps up to 48 hours. In Germany, where they're testing, um, they get the results the same day as they're tested. So if they have a positive, they're, they're, they're taken away immediately before the next training session or before the next match. To what extent would you say that's a problem in, in terms of controlling the amount of infections that occur within Premier League squads? Well, if I just uh, have a go, at that's a good question. Um, and my understanding is that uh, in 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 the Premier League, that's that that's been outsourced to a a, a company to undertake those those tests. Um, what what I'm not sure about, what would be really important, is the degree to which that screening uh, also extends to all other members of that football club staff, um, uh, all sorts of staff, because of course. That those are the group of people um, who are who are likely to infect each other, and of course families as well. So um, the idea that you can sort of somehow keep just the players cocooned in some way with this testing, um, without also looking at the likely source of those uh, of those infections, I think doesn't make sense. So I, that's the first thing I'd want to make sure that that you know families and all staff in the club who the footballers will themselves come into contact with are also part of that, also for equity purposes and so forth. And then secondly is, um, I think if if, if players are being play, tested twice a week and all staff are tested twice a week, that the advantage of that is that you pick up um, those people who are infected, those those players and staff who are infected but do not have symptoms, and and what we find is the younger you are, really, the less the more likely you're going to have the virus if you do get the virus without symptoms. And I think twice a week um, is 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 very reasonable. Um, personally, I don't think. If you're going to do that sort of almost screening, then 24, 24, 48 hours, I think is fine. Um, I'd be worried if it was a one-off. So I, I would. So I'm not too worried about the turnaround time of those results, but I am more worried about um, that screening being extended to all those in, in, involved and their families. The the protocol is that they have uh, initially they had 40 tests per club per round of testing. And they were able to choose which 40 individuals, players and staff they wanted to be tested. It's now gone up to 60 tests per round of testing. So 60 individuals they can choose for, for each round and, and they do that twice weekly. So far, they've had 13 positive tests in the five rounds of testing the Premier League have done to date. Well, well, if I, I mean, Anthony will come in, but just one, one comment on that. I mean... I think this is this is nonsense, really. Um, it is the Premier League is one of the one of the one of the richest institutions in our society. In fact, in the world, um, there is uh, there is capacity 
you know, with money, money can can, can buy anything and it, in, it can buy tests. And this is all being dealt with, I understand, through private companies. So Correct. To, to limit, though, to limit to a certain number of tests, you know, and get football clubs to somehow prioritize, are we really saying a footballer is going to be more important than the 55-year-old woman who serves the tea, who is a far higher risk of disease. But also, if she or he got infected, then, in fact, that would also be the risk of the footballer. So, you know, I think it should really be all staff. And 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 I'm, I'm, I'm very surprised, actually, and disappointed that you've said that there's a, some sort of, um, of, uh, of limit. I'm, I'm slightly surprised that they're having 48 hours to get a result because in China, they got the lab result set down within a couple of weeks of the Wuhan thing from uh, four days to four hours, the result from receiving it in the lab and from symptoms to um, getting the result back, it, they got it down to about two days, I thought. I know in this country, under the new test and trace scheme, they're trying desperately. The, the aim is to get the results and contacts isolated within 48 hours. Because if you leave it longer than that, then your contacts are going to be spreading the virus. Because we know, as Dean has said, that um, if you've been infected, uh, you may well be spreading the virus when you before you have symptoms for a couple of days. So you want to lock down contacts as quickly as possible. But one thing that I think could change everything is point of care testing. Uh, you know, yeah. this, is a, this is a nasal swab. It gets, you know, they rummage around your throat and nose, send it off. It then has to go through a, a lab test that takes about two or three hours. It's quite, you know, complicated. But there are companies up and down the land now developing point of care testing for viruses, uh, for this virus, COVID. And I was under the impression that, you know, a breakthrough was imminent because if you get that, and it's going to be much lower cost. You could have players almost testing every day because it would be very easy to do it. But I, I don't know exactly where we are with that. Do you? Yeah, do I agree. Yeah, no, I, I think that would be an ideal thing. And, and you could, you know, again, resource is less of an issue when you're talking about the Premier League compared to even, even I mean, we struggle with these things in hospitals and, you know, and, and care homes where, of course, there's huge limitations in money, but that's that's not the case. And I would have thought for a club, I mean, how many people are we talking about? Um, um, perhaps you can, you know, estimate how many staff and players are actually in and around the club nowadays. But if we say it's it's 60 or 70, would it would that be a reasonable thing then if they're all tested twice a week then um then particularly with a machine that's set up on site somewhere um i even think saliva could be used probably if if there's twice a week testing rather than actually the throat swab which is a pretty nasty thing to to have done to you i mean a a, a good throat swab makes you gag it's not a pleasant thing that you want to keep going back for um and a nasal swab feels as if someone's sticking a cotton wool bud into your brain so it's not it's not <laughs> not that nice but but it could be done by saliva there's a lot of innovation that could be brought in my worry is just the usual thing as it seems the uk government done outsourced to some private company and they just they tell you what what's what's the deal but i think a bit of innovative thinking could make this much easier as anthony says Premier League paid £4 million 
to a company um, to provide these PCR tests that the chief executive of the company said they have a diagnostic sensitivity of 98%, a specificity of 100%, therefore the total accuracy being approximately 98.8%. They've actually subcontracted to TDL to do yeah. the test. And, they, and they're saying up to four, the same tests as used by the NHS is, is uh, some information I got from the company. Um, and up to 48 hours for results. I think they're getting them after 24 hours in some cases, but there's definitely a lag and it's not that super efficient system that, that you've suggested could be used with the obvious huge resource that's available to the Premier League to handle this. Well, the main limitation, I mean, th th these tests are very good. Um, uh, and and uh, I've no doubt TDL is very established. Uh, uh, a company that actually works very closely to hospital that I'm involved with, with University College Hospital. Um, the, the, the real limitation on, on these tests and sensitivity is with regard to the actual swab itself. Um, okay. And as I said, it is a difficult thing to do. It needs to be done properly, professionally. And, and um, that's one of the reasons I think why, you know, samples that self-tests where swabs are sent through the post to people and you send them back, opt, you know, they, they have a low sensitivity, probably more because it's very difficult for someone to get the get themselves put, stick something in the back of their own throat um, uh, to, to do things. So that then depends on the quality of the people within the club who are taking swabs. Um, um, and, and again, you know, for four million quid, that's, uh, I mean, Anthony, I'll do it for less than that. Well, the, 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 Premier, the Premier League are using outside um, specialists to take the tests. In the championship, it's a different setup and that the clubs have the option of administering the test themselves to save a, a significant amount of money on the, on the total cost of, uh, of running the, the testing regime. It's another way you could do this, and I'm thinking about football more generally, you know, lower leagues, amateur leagues, even, you know, Hackney Marshes and the like. Mm. Couldn't you just uh, go around with a spittoon and get all the players to spit in it and do one test the day before a match? Because as I understand it, picking up the RNAs is very sensitive. So if there's one player there who is infected, you would pick them up. Is that realistic, Dean? And you're a proper tester virologist. <laughs> well, um, that 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 uh, if 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 resource is limited for so for lower lower league clubs yeah. and amateur, amateur football and to get that going, that's a very reasonable idea. Um, that that is most I think that's most reasonable when the infection rate is very so. So for for your listeners, um, what this means is you you end up doing one test but you combine all the saliva or swabs from 11 players and you all mix it all, all up together. Um, and if a positive come, if, if that test is positive, you, knew, you know one, at least one of those people are positive, you can go back and, and uh, or go back to the swabs from those individual players and test those. But of course, we'd expect usually those to be negative. So you're getting away with one test rather than 11 tests. But but I, I still don't think that the test, you know, the testing is the limitation, to be honest. I know there's been a lot of talk and politicians have talked about ramping up capacity and so forth. Um, I think with the sort of innovative approaches that, that we've talked about, um, um, that shouldn't be a problem. I, I, I think I think a bigger thing is being able to get saliva rather than 
throat swabs. Um, but but of course, you, you know, again, you're right. Is yes, and, and as Anthony explained very coherently, we all want Premier, you know, top tier football to to come back. It's a huge benefit for the psychological well-being of um, of men like us. Um, and and um, yet, yet, of course, we want to also get grassroots football going. We, you know, that that's a, that's a huge bit of health promotion. So there, there are these are the other sort of maybe hidden hidden benefits of of having a system that gets Premier League going, which allows the rest of the the leagues to follow. Guys, one of the biggest concerns from Premier League footballers that I've spoken to, and Duncan has also is that the rules for them regarding a positive test for COVID-19 um, will require, under the Premier League guidelines, a seven-day quarantine. Whereas, as we know, the World Health Organization guidelines are 14 days and the guidelines for everyone else in the UK are 14 days. Is there any justification why footballers should be treated differently and have half of the quarantine time of anywhere else in the country? I'm very hesitant about this, um, uh, uh, and I, I can see, I can. Fourteen days quarantine is a real pain, you know, and and uh, there's no doubt about it for for everyone, and particularly people who are not fortunate enough to to have an income and all the rest of it, um, and have to stay away from 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 work, and I and I I do think. Uh, and and of course most so so just getting back to to the rationale for these seven days versus fourteen days, um, if you test positive, um, and particularly with the sort of screening that um, that is being proposed, in other words, everyone being tested twice or whatever it is once a I think you said mentioned twice a week, um, everyone being tested twice a week, um, then. You know, you're not quite sure where that positive is in the in 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 the course of disease that that individual has. That you may test them on on a Thursday, for instance, but you don't know whether they actually started being infected on the and, and started with virus spreading the virus on two days before or that very day. Um, and if they started excreting that virus, uh, spreading it on the day that they're tested. Then you know there's that they can continue spreading for seven days or longer, um, and there's good evidence for um, for for transmission or, or excretion and being able to detect virus from the throat swab for a longer period than seven days. Now it is true that the longer you go after seven days, the less likely people are going to be what we call shedding virus. And it is also likely that the, the virus that's detected in these with these swabs is not necessarily what we call live virus. It's bits of the genes of the virus and therefore may not, the later it on it is, the less likely it, it relates to a virus that is infectious to others. But having said that, seven days is pretty marginal um, and I think, you know, there's we know there are plenty of examples where people have continued being infectious for a longer period of time and infected other people later. Um, and, and so I think for security, I would err on the 14 day side. Supposing they had a negative test or say two negative tests 
let's say they had a test on day seven and they're negative and a test on day eight and they're negative. Well, that's a good, that's a very good point. And of course they are being screened and I was considering the sort of more usual thing. So that is a good point actually, Anthony, that if they've tested negative, then I think that, 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 that plays into it. But I would say, because of what we talked about earlier, about the quality of the swab being important and so on, I would, and, and if they're being tested twice a week, I would want to see at least two swabs that yeah. are negative before they then come back. And maybe that would be a, you know, a, a sort of compromise between the seven days and 14 days. Yeah. Uh, it, is, there, is there a danger involved in only self-isolating the positive as you've just told us, they could have been excreting virus for a couple of days um, in amongst their teammates uh, and therefore... Because they'll be officially, they'll all be contacts, won't they? Indeed. That is a big, that's going to be the biggest issue, I think, for the Premier League, isn't yeah. it? Well, it's a, it's the same it's the same as a minister government minister. I don't know if he's tested positive or not, but um, it, you know who was ill yesterday, Ashut Sharma. And if he tests positive, then you've actually done away with the whole of the front uh, front bench, you know, because they're all all quarantined. Um, uh, and some of your listeners would think that's good, or another's bad. But nevertheless, when it comes to football, um, I, I think the sort of level of interaction that there are. Uh, there, there is within the football club, unless there's really strict, you know, distancing, which we've really talked about, um, that once you actually get into, into get practice games, then that's going to be really difficult. Unless that, unless there's distancing, then that does mean quarantine for many players. And that quarantine is for 14 days. And that's really difficult because the, as I understand it, they want to come back and play, what is it, two games a week? And exactly. there's kind of wall-to-wall television and they're desperate to get the whole league completed for both the Premiership and the Championship. I mean, you only need a couple of teams to go down with it and it wrecks the whole schedule, doesn't it? It does, actually, Anthony, and you're correct that this, I think, is a massive throw of the dice for football with regards to the way that they are conducting uh, the restart of football. Um at the Premier League meeting on Thursday, there was no agreement on what would happen should there be a multi-infection incident in one club or more than one club regarding uh, postponement of fixtures, et cetera, et cetera. So we are definitely in the midst of unknown territory uh, with not just the virus itself, but how clubs and how the Premier League themselves will respond uh, in that instance. It's been great to have uh, Professor Dean Pillay and Professor Anthony Costello on the Transponder podcast. Thank you very much to both of you. Um, we'd also like to say best of luck to both of you for the rest of the season. Uh, as a Spurs fan, uh, Dean and as Millwall fan, Anthony, um, please, please come back on the podcast and let us know if either of you discover an antidote to supporting any of those clubs. Uh, <laughs> or both in that matter uh, and the disappointment that it's brought you over the course of your life and I hope, I hope in the future, joy and celebration uh, thank you very much to both of you and we hope uh, that uh, you get some joy out of the rest of the season and that we speak to you both soon thank you very much, Thanks very much. we will wrap up today's podcast with the inimitable donkey award 
Uh, we're going to dedicate this to the one and only Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Mr Boris Johnson, um, after his appearance at Wednesday's Prime Minister Questions, where it was the question probably that was most poignant that was asked was, is he wearing an earpiece and getting information fed to him by someone outside of the Sacred House? Uh, lots of people suggest that it might be Dominic Cummings, and of course, we're not here to speculate on that. Although other people suggested it might be Bungle from Rainbow, given his own performance. Uh, so I'm going to tear open the golden envelope because we're going to apply us to football now, because this is the donkey for the Boris Johnson Best Use of an Earpiece Award. There we go, Duncan. As you know, I'm running out of golden envelopes, but hopefully soon we'll get them replenished. Uh, our first nomination is our old friend, supersized Sam Allardyce, who, of course, championed and indeed pioneered the use of the earpiece in the Premier League of the noughties when he would sit in the stand and talk to his assistant, Phil Brown, who was on the bench, uh, only to find out that Phil was not quite up to passing those instructions on, uh, so he had to come down to the bench anyway and do it himself. So, uh, supersized Sam, you are nominated once again. The uh, second nomination is, we'll, we'll, we'll keep him anonymous, Duncan, but a certain director of communications for FIFA, who during the Bosman crisis and the potential collapse of the transfer firm market, uh, presided over a press conference by then president, the one and only Sepp Blatter, and introduced uh, the, uh, to all of the media present, the channels upon which you could hear the various translations. The first was German, second was French, third was Spanish, fourth was English, only for some absolute raffish wag to pipe up and say, can you tell us which channel the truth is on? And third, but certainly not last or least, we have Rui Faria, former assistant to, of course, Josie Mourinho at Chelsea, who um, was accused <laughs> in a scandal of wearing a woolly hat uh, during a Champions League game when Mourinho was banned from being in the dugout uh, and was accused of wearing a headset so that Mourinho could give instructions, even though he wasn't allowed to even be in the stadium, never mind be in the stand, leading to the in really legendary story of Mourinho appearing in the dressing room at halftime, having hid out in a laundry basket on wheels. Uh, one of my favourite ever stories, uh, and there are many under Josie. Duncan, uh, I'll leave it up to you to decide on who's got the best use of an earpiece. Well, our, our favourite supersize, Sam, has to be a strong contender here. Um, those images of him with, with that microphone uh, as he was coaching, um, he started using it while down on the touchline in, in um, some stages of his career. And I, I'm, I'm trying to remember if I've ever seen him uh, chewing gum and, and eating the, 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 the microphone while uh, in the process. I'm sure it must have happened once. And if anyone can find I thought you were going to say a pie there, eating a pie <laughs> and chewing the microphone. <laughs> famous gum chewer, famous earpiece wearer, the two must have... Uh, coincided with each other and contradicted each other. I, I, reckon, he, I, reckon, he, career. I reckon he piloted it when he was driving the Granada to different jobs. It was like, a, <laughs> it was like his mobile phone, like one of those really big ones that you got in the 1990s. 
<laughs> um, Rui Faria and Jose Mourinho, um, yeah, also strong candidates here. Um, Faria wearing his woolly heart and lots of attention to it throughout the game. The best part of the story is, I'm told, there was no earpiece, there was no microphone. It was actually uh, an attempt to distract people's attention and play with the media and uh, and maybe even the opponents because, of course, they knew Josie was in the dressing room um, having been smuggled in by the, the laundry basket, so there was nothing underneath the hat. Um, but I think I think the winner for this one is it, it's, it deserves to be FIFA um, for that question about which channel the truth was on. And I, I wasn't at that press conference, Ian, but I'm interested to know what the, uh, the head of communications reply was. He said, you know, FIFA, we don't do the truth. <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless it's in a Swiss court. <laughs> and even then, well, there's no guarantee. Uh, very good, very good. So we will... Um, we may at some point uh, uh, give you the identification of that particular FIFA Dutch communications, but uh, at this point in time, uh, for legal reasons, we're not allowed to do that. Uh, that's it for today's Transfer Window podcast. Um, if you want to continue the debate, please do. Uh, I'm sure you've got lots to ask us and lots to tell us as well uh, on our social media channels at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Duncan's at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. Also, if you like it, you know what to do. Get on iTunes, give us a five-star review. Community gets bigger, blah, blah, blah. You know how it works. That's all for now. Just for us to say, stay safe, be well. And we will see you for the transfer window next week. Thanks for listening. Yeah.